When you discuss adaptive licensing, real-world evidence, CASME, HTAI, or ISPOR, you invariably will bump into Sarah Gardner sitting at the center. Sarah is the Acting Program Manager of Health Products and Pharmaceuticals of the WHO Euro and is the former Associate Director for Scientific Policy and Research at the UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. She's a visionary person seeking new approaches to improve innovation, access, and outcomes in healthcare and has a nuanced view of the financial realities of R&D and the challenges of our national healthcare system. Sarah, as always, it's great to see you. Thank you very much, Dwayne, and thank you for that great introduction. <laughs> it's all true. It's all true. <laughs> so you've left NICE. We always knew you from NICE. And you've recently taken on the role of program manager at the WHO Euro. What exactly are you doing day to day? WHO is split into six different regions. Headquarters in Geneva. So the WHO Euro region goes all the way from the Pacific to the Atlantic. So we have Russia, the former Soviet states. So it's almost EMEA then, EMEA. Yes, it is. Wow. Yeah. Um, so are you flying a lot? Um, uh, there's quite a lot going on, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then also includes Turkey, Greece. Um, so it's quite a varied region as well as obviously the high income states. So it's Western Europe. Europe plus all the emerging yeah, markets Central as well. Yeah, Central Asia. What do you hope to achieve in your role? The role is about 20% policy, I would have thought, mm-hmm. um, 30% management, and then 50% doing direct technical support to countries on request. And what requests do you normally get? So things like countries getting on low middle income countries, they're getting on their feet, they're wanting to do reform. Quite a few of them don't have a reimbursed medicines list, so there's no universal healthcare coverage. Everything is out of pocket. Sure. They don't really negotiate on prices, they just get given a price. So they're price takers. So they want to think about how we develop the systems. They might be interested in um, putting in some form of HTA. Um, Most of them have got essential medicines lists. So then you start bringing in the HTA principles to enlarge the essential medicines list. Um, There might be projects on procurement and supply chain. Um, And then also in the remit is the regulatory function. So WHO supports countries with regulatory system strengthening um, through the benchmarking process. Sure. So they look where they are now. The the vision is every country has level three. Um, So it moves from a reactionary to a sort of more organized, proactive system, putting in um, institutional development plans, seeing where they are um, and and working with them to do the capacity development. And as countries are getting overall wealthier, there's general economic Mm -hmm. growth. Do you see the need growing for these services? And that's why you were brought in? Yes, definitely. Yes, definitely. There's, I think, opportunity there for countries to learn from the systems development that has happened um, in Europe to actually now leapfrog over. Um, so we're already getting people thinking, working with HTA, using HTA, knowing about it as how can I put this in, into my system. You have an innovation mandate as well, correct? WHO does, yes. So WHO um, is undergoing transformation at the moment and there's a new um, innovation hub that's been established at headquarters. Mm-hmm. I tried to identify early on um, innovations in either healthcare delivery or um, health technologies products um, that might bring about a step change. So they're thinking through how they can actually formalize that system. We did a lot of work together on the adaptive licensing projects. And, you know, flexible pricing and market entry would potentially increase competition and lower working capital requirements. You've been involved in both CASME and MIT's new digs Mm -hmm. focused on adaptive pathways. Can you describe adaptive pathways and how you think they could be applied? So if we take the name out of it for the moment, um, my 
take on adaptive pathways um, is it's just better coordination and it, it's upfront thinking through what is that asset going to need to be developed and what role are all the different stakeholders are playing um, and that's where it different so rather than having a sequential unrelated stages that, that it goes through let's now think of those stages as a system and work out how we can most efficiently get it through that system either fail early or support it through the development do you think um, flexible pricing then is a real key to that? What do you mean by flexible pricing? Well, if a product comes in, yep. generally it comes in at a, at a high price because generally it just goes down, except yep. in the, some cases they in the go, U.S. It does go up. Some, it it does, does go up. <laughs> some cases in the U.S. they go up <laughs> as they're approaching um, the end of their life. But generally in Europe, prices go one way. They generally go yep. down, usually. The idea of an adaptive approach is if it comes in earlier while you're testing mm. the efficacy and effectiveness in real time. You can actually adjust the pricing and they could theoretically go up if they're more efficient. Yeah. yeah. The point of argument is always about the entry price. Sure. That That's where it goes. For, so from the company's perspective, they're obviously concerned it's only going to go down, so they want it sure. high. And from the public health perspective, suddenly we've got a lot of uncertainty, but we're being asked to pay for high prices. So have your cake and eat it the risks are being borne by the public systems because this is now a licensed drug. So th this is always the point of contention over it. What we were advocating for um, is the development of trust and actually a dis open discussion about this, about how we design the development plan um, to take into account how we reduce the uncertainty and then have a discussion about the prices and that and who gets what at the end of it. There was a lot of pushback against this in Europe, though, when we were trying to do it. Yeah. Why do you think there was such reticence to even investigating this approach for real? It's not something that's done, usually. That's I think that's a dis it's uncertainty. And there is a, that mistrust. Sure. Um, there's a mistrust about whether the data is going to be produced, whether the studies will be done. Um, and just generally, public systems aren't used to entering into these partnerships. This becomes a partnership. So they've got to now act differently, mm -hmm. behave differently, and develop different skill sets to be able to deal with that negotiation where you, you're thinking again about where the research is going to be done, what's the public person contributing to the research. It becomes more and much more of a partnership. Do you think there's going to be an opportunity with some of the emerging countries that you're working with outside of the EU28 to maybe start instilling some of these new processes? I think so. Yeah, they're not there yet. Some of the countries, if you think about where the IT infrastructure is, sure. that they do actually have heavily investment in the IT side of things. So it's perfectly natural that they're going to start building data capabilities to use that um, infrastructure into their healthcare. So that I think there is an opportunity there. It would seem logical then that they could try and leapfrog some yeah. of these institutionalized yeah. processes that we've got in Western yeah. Europe. Hungary is, a, is sure. a, a great example of that. Sure, and Estonia, yeah. of course, as yeah, well. Estonia is exactly. thought leading in all sorts of uh, exactly. areas right now. Exactly. Over the last four years, we've seen and been tracking biotech investments globally, and we're seeing, shall we say, a bleed of advanced biotech from Europe mm. to the United States. There's a brain drain occurring in Europe in the EU28. Do you think the EU politicians and regulators are taking this seriously? I think there's an awareness. I haven't, mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't had any direct conversations with anybody about this, but just looking at what's happening, what's being portrayed um, in the media, then there is an awareness that this is happening. But it's one of those things that it's it's everybody's problem and nobody's responsibility right. again. So it's going to take concerted effort to actually 
one become aware of exactly what's happening so so what what where are we seeing this where are the numbers what what's actually happening on the ground so that research needs to be done and then you have to think cohesively about policies to actually reverse that if if you can are there discussions in the who around this right now who is undergoing a transformation at the moment and i think there's an increasing awareness of the importance of this this ecosystem and obviously as we're seeing the discussions about pricing hitting um in the high income countries then obviously who gets drawn into the conversation with issues like the fair pricing forum so it's pulled into the debate so if we look at some of the emerging treatments like say car t yeah very effective, mm-hmm. a wonderful mm-hmm. substitute for bone marrow, highly expensive, yeah. very difficult supply chain. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're flying human tissue basically halfway around the world to produce, and yet there's a lack of access. How do you see the access problem being addressed? Because some countries don't have access to these therapies, and yet they're very, they have a lot of traction and utility. From WHO Euro perspective, you have to put this into context sure um so if you're thinking that the spectrum of countries the low-income middle-income countries and high-income countries some of the low-income countries don't actually have a benefit package at all so not 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 got to the stage where we're looking about what high cost items should go in there we're actually needing to provide basic medicines so your, your insulins your um, blood pressure medication um, so there's really really basic things that are missing people are having to pay themselves for sure. it the regulatory systems are weak so there's a lot of trust in the generic medicine so they're obviously the brand is being used as a proxy for quality sure they pay the higher cost because they think they're getting it as a safeguard for quality so we've got some quite big problems in the region and it comes to the high-income countries, this is something we should, again, we should be celebrating that we've had such a success rate seen with these therapies, and we need a mature discussion about how we're going to resolve it and ensure access. What about within the EU28, where there's a mandate for equal treatment across all countries? Mm -hmm. How would WHO interact with the EU to try and ensure equal access, or at least provide new methodology? This is not an arena that WHO has traditionally entered into sure it's been more focused on the low and middle income countries but it increasingly um was starting to think about um where is who what is who role we're starting with the revision of the pricing guidelines so who issues um just strategies for pricing looking at the evidence around different strategies and how they can impact on affordability so starting there, there's the initiatives around the Fair Pricing Forum, so starting to think about different working groups, looking at different ways that we can resolve some of this um, and providing support to that discussion. The other forum that needs to happen in, and is again, WHO does, has not previously um, engaged a lot with the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, so as an organisation, it's thinking through about what are the rules of engagement and what are the projects that we can work on jointly do you see more of that happening now um increased appetite to do so the trick is finding the projects that can be jointly worked on where you don't start getting conflicts of interest when you were at nice you did a lot of collaboration with particularly with a lot of the it companies do you see that there's scope for improvement in that definitely but i think nice was fairly progressive in that reason that they saw the value of okay we're getting blamed as, as an <laughs> HTA agency sure. we're getting a lot of, lot of flack but actually this is a result of problems and decisions that occurred much earlier on which we had no control over and suddenly you're presented with something and asked 
to pay for it. Right. So NICE realised, sort of quite inspirational management, realised that actually we need to now start engaging in the ecosystem and start to bring that awareness around how the public systems operate, what the operating constraints are, and actually pull those decisions and, and that knowledge and awareness it's finding the projects and you have um, initiatives like the Innovative Medicines Initiative, which I worked on a number of projects as the policy lead. Um, so Adapt Smart, um, Get Real, and then some of the big data for better outcomes projects in the early phases. And it's absolutely a brilliant forum where you actually get all the stakeholders sitting around a table. It's quite exceptional that you're able to get the insights um, from the companies that are working in the same areas that you are and actually start to understand things from the other perspective and then jointly find solutions. It seems from your perspective then taking that knowledge and moving it into the innovation mandate yeah. in the WHO, there's a huge opportunity for scope to actually make yeah. that occur. Yeah. I, th- I think there's some easy win projects. Sure. So if you start thinking about the supply chain, there's a program of work around um, substandard and falsified medicines. Sure. Um, so that's in everybody's interest now to start thinking about how you can secure those supply chains. So barcoding is one example um, where you can start ro- rolling that out. So it's, it's about finding those wins where you can take out the potential conflicts of interest. But from a public health perspective, you can understand what are the issues countries are facing and make sure there's awareness of what those issues are. The barcoding of, of mm. drugs was interesting because that was one of Richard Bergstrom's yeah. former director of FPA. That was one of his big projects. And obviously the reason why he was interested in that was to allow for differential pricing yeah. across geographies. And yeah. obviously one of the problems we've seen in Europe when you don't mark the boxes is some of the boxes that are sold at a discount in one country yeah. end up in another country at a higher price. Yeah. Do you think that this has traction for differential pricing in particular? Um, so the project that I described earlier about the pricing guidelines and the fair pricing um, forum. So there's going to be a working group established to actually look at differential pricing and actually examine from every stakeholder's perspective the pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, it's a company's decision about how they price in different countries. The Trump administration is threatening to put in place legislation that will force the companies to try and raise drug prices broadly across all of Europe, yeah. including some of the emerging countries that you've mentioned. Do you think that that's practical? I'm concerned with the role that I have now. Um, one of the concerns I have around this is that the European country, EU28, um, have good systems in place for price negotiation for regulating HTA. I have concerns about the countries that don't. Right. Um, so what is the impact going to be on the other countries that can't effectively negotiate um, and will their prices go up even more making these these new um, options or even some of the older options even more um, unaffordable likely they would go up if everything's going up around them I would think yeah and they they don't as I say they don't have the infrastructure the technical capacity to actually deal with this and work through it so that, that would be my concern around this the debate that is happening now in Europe about drug prices, will they be able to go up? Will countries pay for them? I don't think so. I think the debate is going to get even stronger. And what countries are actually asking for, okay, we want more transparency here. You're being asked to pay more and more prices. We want to understand 
why we're paying this amount um, because we don't trust that this is actually truly what the costs are mm-hmm. for the development. So it's again, we're back to the trust issues. And that's one of the, the reasons for that um, is actually to say, let's understand this a little bit more. What impact that will have, I don't know. Well, one of the impacts right now yeah. is a an incentives review that's occurring in Europe. We're yeah. looking at the incentives around particularly orphan drugs mm-hmm. and small indications. Mm-hmm. What do you think might be one of the results of the orphan drug review, the incentives review right now? The concerns are that this is being used and abused by companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need some empirical research to get a better understanding of exactly what is happening with that. So we got some facts and figures that we can actually play with. So I don't think that understanding's there. A lot of it's based on anecdote at sure. the moment. Um, so let, let's see, let's actually do a, some critical analysis um, of what's actually happened and then take it from there. I think one of the areas of controversy is around the patent length. Is that actually what is driving the investments or is it actually the fact that it's faster to market um, a bit more certainty around it Um, but then again you've got to put that against the smaller market size from a lot of the research we've done is investors Mm -hmm. are pretty adamant that they don't really care about the market exclusivity they care about the the speed of the the ruling and the certainty around the orphan drug pathway as a whole putting on your former regulator had in the UK, do you think the orphan drug regulation has been a success? Well, we've got the result. We've got more orphan medicines. A lot more orphans. A lot more orphan medicines. A lot more needs met that weren't being met previously and had no chance of being met. So if you look at actually in terms of patients, it has been um, a success. Whether or not the public systems agree because of the, the budget issues, but then there's smaller numbers of patients, it's done what it was supposed to do it did what it said on the tin it, it did what it said on the tin exactly <laughs> um and as you've pointed out to me a number of times that the market dynamics for um orphan medicines um don't work in the same way no because uh, you have a disincentive because of the size of the population mm-hmm. what we've seen in our research interestingly enough is and we've, there's some other empirical evidence that matches our work is Part of the reason why the market exclusivity is not so important is that in the vast majority of the drugs, over 80%, the markets aren't big enough for a generic competitor yeah, to come yeah. in. There just isn't yeah. enough market there. Yeah, There's no exactly. there there. Exactly. You know. So does it actually matter what patent? You come back to, okay, this is a pricing issue. It's a pricing issue because the yeah. pricing is high. Yeah. And obviously the smaller the market will be, yeah. the higher the price will have to be by definition. Yeah. And that is built, that is baked into the cake yeah. as it were. But we've also seen that most orphans aren't profitable. No. No. <laughs> so no. do you see that we're just going to get more and more as a, a greater amount of orphanization just because the way science is leading with more um, biomarkers and more genetic indications? I don't know orphanization is the right term i think personalization yes sure definitely you need even just starting to look at the the stuff that's going on with pharmacokinetics pharmacodynamics and, and think about how people process the drugs we have sure we're starting to understand how different people are um so it's, it's inevitable that we're going to get more personalization of treatment how we deal with that is another yeah. another matter there's yeah. a reality there economically yeah. that if you're if we're not doing regulatory reform and that's a constant. And then we're doing smaller populations. Yeah. I mean, there's a the rubber has to hit the road it's, somewhere, it, and the price has to come from somewhere. Well, again, it's about, and uh, there are a number of initiatives doing that. It's stepping back and thinking. You know, we've got a, a regulatory model that was um, it was about authorization to market, which right. meant can you back the claims that you're making with hard 
evidence so you can make them and that that's the paradigm we've got but actually bodies don't necessarily work in narrow indications this is what we're seeing is this these two things coming together so we need to ask some fundamental questions about how we how do we regulate these things how do we ensure they're safe Um, because you have the off-label which from a regulatory perspective is not what you want but that is the reality of clinical medicine and how clinical medicine operates and do you want to stop that innovation probably not because and that's not, where you get the discoveries and we're not capturing that data more on times exactly. than not exactly so we should make every exposure count and so we're actually understanding um and not try to artificially segment into different indications because that's not how bodies operate but it's also not how regulators often operate either so this requires some out-of-the-box thinking it needs more thought yes definitely looking forward what do you think over the next five years are going to be the big challenges in your role at the who and what do you think are the big opportunities Again, if you think think around, like a lot of the role, as I said at the beginning, is around technical support to countries. WHO planning runs on two-year cycles, and we've just completing um, the ones for the next biennium. And most of the countries have asked for support in the um, pharmaceuticals and health projects area. Um, so they, the member states ask, the governments ask and say, WHO, please, can you help with this? And all of the countries have asked for that support so the challenges around capacity sure. uh, to actually provide that support so it's critical for me it's about developing that network of expertise that you can draw on are you having to staff up it sounds like you'd have uh, to the, with the budgets are going down yeah yes. that's gonna the, be tough yes so so in terms of for me one of my big biggest challenges is going to be around fundraising for this work to actually be able to develop the portfolio and provide that support and euro region as well this is not something you you don't think about what's on the doorstep when you're sitting in one of the eu 28 and they're not traditionally um, receiving a lot of funding so again thinking about how we can do that fundraising to be able to provide that support but it's great that the interest's there in five years in perfect world what do you see happening (laughs) in five years i would like to see every single country in the euro region undergoing benchmarking for their pharmaceutical systems it don't count again the eu 28 this is the non-eu countries so they have an institutional development plan so we're really getting those regulatory systems brought up to speed and confidence which will also this is good for industry because you have that certainty and that continuity about what's going to happen when you put things into the country we're going to have universal healthcare coverage it's going to need a lot of investment when we get there but at least a basic package of medicines available free to the population in all those countries that will be great. <laughs> Magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, thank you very much You're for your welcome, time. Welcome, Jane.